Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. If you brought one of those Bibles with you, you know, and uh, whether a paper one that, uh, or one of them digital versions on your mobile phone, please turn with me to the book of John. We're going to be in chapter 14. And, uh, and today we're in part five of our series titled Christianity 101, which is subtitled uh, What We Believe and Why. And the whole point of this series is to give you a foundational understanding uh, of what we need to believe in order to follow Jesus. What is it you need to actually believe in order to be saved and follow Christ? And uh, we've been talking about essentially basic Christianity, Christianity at the very foundational level. Now, um, we've, we've been covering, you know, um, a lot of great here and, 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 and what we and we're not covering everything there is to know about Christianity okay we're not covering all of theology it's not that comprehensive but we are certainly focusing on the very essentials of our faith and, and in just a second um, I'm gonna do a quick review you know uh, on the ground that we've covered so far uh, because we've, we've covered some really important subjects but understand if you have not been here okay if you have not been here in the last few weeks it might feel like you're drinking from a fire hose just a little bit, okay? All right. It might seem like you're stepping into like the middle of a story and everybody else is getting it and you're the one that's lost going, I, I don't know what you're talking about here. And, and that's okay, okay? Because we have a remedy for that. The good news is we have already uploaded all of these messages in this series to our SoundCloud page and our church website and you can listen to them from the very beginning and get all caught up. I just ask you don't do that right this second, okay? All right. Okay. And by this afternoon, this message here will also be uploaded as well, and, and both of the addresses uh, for the website and the SoundCloud are in your bulletin for your convenience, and so I encourage you to listen to them, and re-listen to them, and maybe even share them with your friends and your family, and so, uh, as I said, we're in part five of this series, and, and we kicked off this series in week one, and what we discussed was what's called the doctrine of justification by faith. In other words, you are not saved by what you do, you're saved by what you believe, okay? It's not what you do that saves you, it's what you believe that's, that that saves you. You're saved by grace through faith, okay? There's nothing, nothing, can I say it again, nothing you can do to save yourself. And we talked about that at great length. And it is, it's not what we do that brings us to the place of salvation is what we believe. Uh, what we believe is critically important to our salvation, okay? You see, you're saved by grace through faith, and it's not about behavior, Okay, contrary to what, what, what our culture and what the world around us tells us, it's not about behavior. In fact, just as Paul told the jailer who asked him the very point of question, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Salvation comes from what we believe and it's not what we do. And as we discussed that in week one. And then week two, we began talking about the object of our belief. Okay, uh, If we're saved by what we believe, then what is the object of that belief? What is, what, we, what is the object of what we're believing in? And the object of what we believe in, the object of our faith as we talked about, is Jesus Christ. And so in week one... We begin to look at the historical perspective of that object of our faith. And we begin to, to look at who he was in history and what he did. And we came to terms with four uh, specific things that you absolutely need to believe about the historical Jesus. And they are these. Um, number one, that you need to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Uh, number two, that he, was, he had a sinless life. Number three, he died on the cross. And number uh, four, he physically rose from the dead. That he has physically rose back to life. 
life. These are not mysterious things. They're not mystical things. They're not legendary things. These are historical facts. These are things that actually happened in time and space. These are the things that you must believe about Jesus in history. And then week three, we started talking about the real Jesus, not that the historical Jesus isn't the real Jesus. It's just there's more to Jesus than just what the historians say. Okay? There's more to Jesus than that. In fact, what we talked about was the real Jesus as revealed to us by God himself in his word. And we began to talk about the nature of who Christ is. And we talked about the fact that Jesus is indeed God. That he is 100% God. But he is also God in the flesh, which means he's 100% God and 100% man. And what we discovered, there are five things that we need to believe about Christ, okay? You are to believe, number one, that Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, okay? He's both God and man. Number two, these natures are full and complete, which means he's not 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God, 100% man. And then, number three... These two natures um, remain distinct. Jesus' human nature is not divine, and Jesus' divine nature is not human. Okay? And then uh, number four, even though that he has two natures that are distinct, he is still but one person. Okay, that's an important thing to understand about Jesus. He's one person. And then number five, what is true of one of his natures is true of Jesus as a person. Okay, meaning that in Jesus' divine nature, he existed into eternity past. That means that the person of Jesus existed for eternity past. But in his human nature, Jesus had a birth, which means Jesus the person had a real birth in time and space. Okay, And I know that this seems complicated, but this is the truth about who Jesus really is. And so... Uh, that answered for us then the question of who. Okay, well, who is it that saves us? Who is it specifically, the, uh, Jesus? Who is this Jesus that that brings salvation to us? And then last week we tackled the why question. Okay, why do we need to be saved? Why did God come to Earth, become a man, and die for our sins? Why did we need salvation in the first place? You see, just as important as what we believe about who saves us, it's also important to ask the question of why we need to be saved in the first place. You see, Jesus did not die on the cross so you could have a better life. He did not die on the cross so you could have more stuff. He did not die on the cross so you could feel better about yourself or be a better person, and he didn't die on the cross to, to bring peace on earth right now. Jesus did not die on the cross for any of those things because those things were too small for him to give his life for. He didn't sacrifice himself for those things. Instead, Jesus died on the cross to save mankind from his greatest problem. He, he came to save mankind from their sin. You see, sin and its consequences is mankind's greatest problem. We spent a, lot, a long time talking about that, that sin, okay, it results in death. It kills relationships, it kills marriages, it kills careers and families, and it kills people physically. But more than that, it leads to an eternal separation with God. Sin is our greatest problem, and salvation from sin is our greatest need. And so, um, our understanding of sin is essential to our faith. In fact, we made it absolutely clear, okay, that, 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 that who God is will forever be irrelevant to us until you understand why he had to die. You will not embrace Jesus Christ until you understand what your problem is and why you need him. And so there's four things that we talked about that we must believe about sin to be saved. Number one, sin is a real thing. 
It is not folklore. It is a real thing. Number two, there's not, uh, there, uh, sin has real consequences. Okay? Sin, as we talked about, causes death. It kills families and friendships and marriages and finance and even health. But the greatest consequence for sin is the fact that it requires justice. One day, we, God will judge sin. Okay? And all that are in their sin will not simply vanish. They will not simply cease to exist. They will not simply get a free pass. They will suffer in Eternity in hell separated from the life-giving presence of God. Sin has consequences and that must be understood. Okay? And, and we also must understand that we're all sinners. You are a sinner. Every one of us, every person who's ever lived is a sinner. And all of us, because we're sinners, deserve to be punished and to make things worse. Number four, you cannot, you cannot save yourself. You're incapable of saving yourself. That's why God had to come to die to save you. Your sin is so bad that you can't fix it. And it's because of that, it's because of that you need a Savior. Okay. That is what you need to believe about sin. Okay. It is real. It has consequences. And you are in fact a sinner and you can't save yourself from your sin. That is the bad news that you have to come to grips with. But it's also the bad news that sets up the good news. You see, the gospel always begins with the bad news. That you're a hopeless sinner destined for hell. And the only you can't do anything to, to, to fix it except for believe in or put your faith in Jesus Christ who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, was raised again from the dead, proving that he is what he claimed to be, which is 100% God, 100% man, and that he can do what he's promised to do, which is to save you from your sins. Okay, That's the gospel. That's the essential things you need to believe about. The gospel. These are the things that you need to believe. These are the things that you need to know. These are the things that the Bible makes absolutely clear okay, about our faith. Apart from these things, you cannot be saved. The foundation of Christianity is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must absolutely believe the gospel. And the thing is, most of us know this. Most of us know these things. Okay, we know that we know that we're sinners. Nobody has to really tell us that. And we know that we need Jesus, and we know that Jesus is God in the flesh. We've heard that so many times. We understand that. Okay, but the problem is, is we live in a world and in a culture that doesn't value what we know. We live in a culture that doesn't care about what you know. We live in a culture that values what you feel. Okay? We don't live in a culture that values what you know and understand. We live in a culture that values what you feel, your emotions and your desires. And you might be inclined to disagree with me about this, and, and you might even object, but think about this. Okay? Um, is there any question that drinking too much is a bad thing? Okay? Right. I mean, I mean, we all know that, right? We all understand that, all right? Okay? But, but because we know that, and because so many people know that, it doesn't stop a lot of people who know that from doing that, right? That knowledge doesn't stop them and keep them from doing that. Right? That's just the tip of the iceberg, too. Because, I mean, we all know that smoking is, is bad for you, right? But, but people still smoke, right? You and I all 
all, we all know, we have all know, there's no question we all need more sleep or we need to eat right, we need to exercise. We all know those things, right? You don't have to read it in a book to know those things. And we all know that lying is wrong, yet we still lie. We all know that infidelity is wrong, yet 76% of men and 70% of women uh, are unfaithful. We all know that we shouldn't watch so much TV. We all know that we should probably mind our business, right? We all know that we should talk less and listen more. We all know that we should be more generous and forgiving. We, there are lots of things that we know. But the thing is, our culture and our own nature doesn't encourage us to live by what we know. It encourages us to live by how we feel. It urges us to operate from our emotions and our desires. It urges us to supplant the things that we know with our emotions. It causes us to lose hold and on the firm reality of the things we know. And it entices us to grab a hold of what it is that we feel. And we've all experienced this, right? I mean, that's why we drink too much and stare too long or splurge on material things that we don't need, right? That's why we fib and tell little white lies, rationalizing that it's not that bad, right? That's why we have this tendency to fish around for gossip, right? That's why we allow our children to get away with things that we, that we know that they need to be disciplined for. We tend to bend towards our emotions. And it's also why... Marketing and, and propaganda, you know, are all designed to elicit emotion. They're designed to make you feel something. Watch the commercials. Okay, you know that it's not about appealing to what you think here. It's about your feelings. You watch the political ads. Okay, they're not trying to get you to think better. They're trying to get you to feel something. Okay, our emotions tend to drown out the facts and the truth that we end up knowing. And regardless of how, what we know and, and, and how we know it, regardless of the source of our knowledge, and it's the same thing, right? with what we know about our faith. You see, we spent the last four weeks together and we know that salvation uh, is that our sin is a big deal. Okay, And because it's a big deal, all right, because our sin's a big deal, it has huge consequences. And because it has huge, devastating consequences, we need to be saved. And we know that we can only be saved through faith. We're saved by what we believe. The object of what we believe is essential to our faith. And so what we believe is very important. What we believe about our Savior is critical. What we know about Jesus is essential for our salvation. As we talked about the last several weeks. But here's the problem. The problem is, this is not something that our culture accepts. This is, something, this is not something that our culture and, and, and many people around us will accept. This is not something our culture uh, wants to hold on to. In fact, our culture wants to push back on this. The fact that you must believe in Jesus and believe specific things about Jesus to be saved is something that is offensive to so many people. It's something that our culture refuses to accept. It's something uh, that is used by our culture to paint Christians as, uh, as, as bigoted and narrow-minded and even intolerant. Uh, because the gospel okay, that, that we believe in for them is too exclusive. The gospel excludes too many people for them. Because if you don't believe, then you're excluded. It's as simple as that, right? Okay? And that's a problem for our culture. And our culture will ask, well, what about this other guy? What about these other people that do good don't they, you know, who don't believe in Jesus? What happens to them? I mean, do they just simply go to hell because they don't believe in Jesus? Okay? Forget the fact that they deserve hell like the rest of us. Okay? But what about them? Why are they excluded? I mean, they're good people. They do good things. 
You see, our behavior-oriented culture rejects this. And so, so many around us also um, reject this. They reject the exclusive nature of the gospel. It's offensive to them. It offends them. It deeply disturbs and offends their sensibilities. And it doesn't, now understand, it doesn't offend them because of what they know about the truth. It offends them because of how they feel about the truth. You see, it just doesn't seem right to them. It just doesn't feel right Right? It just seems so unfair. We've heard that before. Okay? And all the questions and objections that they have are based not on what they know, but how they feel. It doesn't seem right that a loving God would send people to hell, even though that's exactly what we deserve. And it doesn't seem right that God would punish good people, even though we've had that discussion about who really good people are. And it doesn't seem right you know, that, that, that you have to believe a specific way about a specific person, you know, because even though you're so devoted and religious and sincere and you behave so well. You see, it's not about, you know, what the Word of God itself says. It's not about what you can know as God reveals the truth to us. It's about how they feel. And what they feel is that the exclusivity of the gospel, its exclusive nature is wrong. And to make that an even worse problem is there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who, who, who hold to that, they, they, they've been influenced by that. There are a lot of people who will say that they follow Jesus and even acknowledge all the things that we've talked about, that they've come to faith and, and, and they believe in the, hist- what, the history and what the Bible has to say about Jesus, but at the same time, they will on some level deny the exclusivity of the gospel. They will deny that there is only one way to God. They will deny that there's only one way to be saved. In spite of all the Bible teaches, they will refuse to rule out that there are other ways to God. Okay? And these people don't make the denial based on what they know. They don't make this denial you know, uh, because of what they've been taught. They, they make this denial based on how they feel. See, most of them... Um, the feeling is because they have a relationship with other people that they know and they love and respect and admire. And those people don't believe the essential things that we've mentioned. And because of that, there's this tension okay, that, that they feel in their hearts, this tension between what they know about the, God's word, but then how they feel about people. There's this tension between what they've been taught about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how they feel about this other person they care about so much. And because of this tension, they seek to find some kind of middle ground on which to resolve this tension. Okay? And they look for a balance. right? They, they, they bow to that balance. I know that, that, that the exclusive nature of the gospel, but what I feel is that this person is so good and so wonderful I love them so much, they must be saved just by some loophole or chance. You see, this tension causes them to be really uncomfortable, and it causes them to want to, to not be confrontational. It causes them to begin to rationalize and extrapolate beyond what the Bible itself actually teaches about this and what the church has held dear for 2,000 years. It causes them to want to compromise and to capitulate and to adjust the gospel to fit their emotions, their emotions for people. Okay? It begins to drive their theology and how they understand God. They will say things, well, I mean, how can they not be saved? I mean, they're such good people. I mean, I mean, God must know how good they are. I mean, you know, 
God should love them. I mean, look what they do for other people. I mean, look how kind and compassionate and caring they are. I mean, look, he's doing such great things in his life. I mean, she's doing so much good for the world. I mean, I know Christians who are worse people than they are. I know Christians who are rude and judgmental. I know Christians who don't care about anybody else but themselves. All right? I mean, if God is a loving God, then he'd save my friend. He'd save my grandma. He'd save my son or my daughter or my husband because they're so special and so good. God, will, God should save them because, you know, they behave well, right? Well, so many of us want to rationalize that God will save those we know and respect and love because we are attached to them. We are attached to them emotionally. These people inspire us. They make us smile. They fill us full of joy. They make our hearts sing. They're important to us on some level. We're attached to them. And that attachment and those emotions tend to get in the way of the truth that we know. We begin to look at ways to bend what we know about God and and, and, and contort our theology about Him around our emotions. We, we try to mold the gospel narrative around the, uh, and the plain truth of, of what we know about God around how we feel. And so we start to distort the truth because, because of it. And, and, and at the heart of that, and at the heart of how we feel for others, and at the heart of what the culture struggles with, is the hard truth. The gospel is so exclusive. That you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, who is fully God and fully man alone. The gospel is exclusive. Okay? If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't get saved. That's the truth. Regardless of your sincerity, regardless of your behavior, regardless of, of the good nature or your intentions. Okay? If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't get saved. And more than that, if you don't believe in the right Jesus, you don't get saved. If you don't believe in the, the right Jesus, the, you know, the historic Jesus who, who was born of a virgin died on a cross and, and rose again. And if you don't believe in the Jesus who is fully God and fully man, you don't get saved regardless of how religious you are, regardless of how devoted you are to your religion, regardless of how many times a day you pray to God and bow your, your face to God. You're not saved by what you do. You're saved by what you believe. And the truth is, if that's what we're believing in. If that's where our heart wants to go to, then we have to question where we are. And at the heart of that, regardless of the sincerity of our behavior, it's about what we believe and not what we do. And, and there's something in our culture and there's something in many of us that just wants to resist that truth. There's something that we just go... I don't like the way that feels. And there's something in our culture, and many of us simply just want to hold out hope. We just want to hold out some hope that there's still another way. Especially for those we care about. Especially for those that we love so much that we know that they don't believe. Especially for those who don't, that we care about and don't embrace the essentials of our faith. But there is a truth that we as Christ followers must embrace in spite of of our emotions. There is a truth that we must embrace in spite of the pressure that we feel from our culture. There is a truth that we must grab hold of and embrace and believe in spite of those we love who refuse to believe it. And the truth is, whether we like it or not, the gospel is in fact exclusive by its very nature. Okay, There are not multiple ways to God. 
There are not multiple ways to salvation. God does not have a multitude of identities, and all religions and all faiths do not lead to his door. There are not multiple gods. He is one God, the only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Moses tells us very clear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 44.6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 43.10, You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, and nor shall there be any after me. Amen. Over and over and over and over and over and over again, if you want to find a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, you will find that God is the only God. God is exclusive in nature. There is no other God. He is a jealous God who there is no other God. He is exclusive. You see, God, the gospel is exclusive because God himself is exclusive. There is no other God. And the gospel is exclusive, which means there's no other approach to God. Not multiple ways, but one way. Okay? There are not multiple ways to know God. There are not multiple ways to, to have a relationship with God. There's only one way to God. And Jesus himself, God in the flesh said that there's only one way. In fact, turn with me to John 14. We're going to begin in verse 1. And, and, and let's just take a look and see what Jesus actually has to say here. Now, as you're turning there, before we jump in, uh, let me just kind of take a moment and kind of give you some context here. Jesus and his disciples in this part of the story uh, are gathered together in the upper room. Okay, this is like the Last Supper. Okay, this is their last meal together. And this is a time together that's really kind of strange for the disciples because this is a time that's really emotional for them and it's also very confusing to them because there's a lot happening in a short amount of time. I mean, there's a lot going on at supper. Uh, you see, not only do they eat dinner together, but then Jesus gets up in the middle of dinner and he takes a towel and a basin. He starts washing their feet. He starts washing their nasty feet, which is a job only saved for the, the lowest of low servants, but he's doing it as a way to show them how much he loves them and how they should serve one another. Okay? And, and if that wasn't confusing enough, um, Jesus then predicts that one of these 12 disciples is going to betray him to his death. Okay, And then before they can even fully recover from that, before they can actually get their heads wrapped around what's about to happen, then Jesus starts talking about this new commandment, that they should love each other the way that he has loved them. And then before, he, before they could even, like again, get their, their heads straight, he's telling Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the morning comes. Okay, And so his followers are kind of dazed and confused and emotional because they know something is up and they, you know, they certainly can sense that something big and bad is about to happen. You ever been there before where you just know something's not right? Right? Okay? All right. And then Jesus, understanding their anxiety, he then begins to comfort them with their hope. And he begins to reassure them of where they're going. And he begins to tell them what their hope is. And he begins in verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's just stop right there for a second. Okay. Notice he, Jesus begins to comfort his disciples and, and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled or don't worry. Don't let, let these anxious feelings consume you or don't be consumed by the negative emotions you're feeling. But instead, here's a big word, believe. Okay. 
He says, to believe in God and believe in me, the answer to their worry and their concern and those emotions that are not lining up with what they know, okay, the answer to that is to believe in him. That's the starting point of the comfort, is to believe in Jesus. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And that right there, that's the promise, okay? Jesus is going to leave, but one day he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's already made preparations for that day. He's already made the preparations for the time when they're going to be reunited with Jesus. It's already kind of like etched out. It's already, the details are already done. And, 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 and what he's promising is that he's going to come back, and then they will be with him forever. That's the Christian hope right there, right? That's what we hope for, that, that to be permanently in the life-giving presence with Jesus forever and ever and ever. That's our hope, that we spend eternity with Christ, healed, perfected, right? And Jesus says that's the hope, and that hope is a reality. And I'm, where I'm going, he says, I'm going away right now, but I'm, I'm going to come back for you. And then Jesus says an astounding thing. He says, and you know the way to where I'm going. You know the way. You know the way to eternity. You know the way to salvation. You know the way to spend time with me in eternity. And then Thomas, who I think I probably would be just like, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way, right? You see, Thomas was struggling to understand what was happening, and he wasn't sure what Jesus was talking about. And he was confused, and he was emotional at the prospect of Jesus leaving. He didn't want Jesus to leave. And in that moment, he couldn't fully grasp where Jesus was going. And so he says to Jesus, how can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, in this text right here, Jesus takes all the doubt and he casts it aside. Any ambiguity about what salvation is about, it's moved aside. The road to salvation, Jesus says, that he's at. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I'm the way to salvation. I'm the way to hope. I am the way to God. He says, I'm the truth, the truth itself. He is the very word of God, which is the truth. He is truth incarnate. And then he says, I am the life, that Jesus is life. Remember what John said in, in John chapter 1, verse 3. He says, all things were made through him, Jesus, and through, without him, not anything was made that was made. Jesus is the creator of all things, including mankind. And then notice what John says in verse 4. He says, he says um, in him was what? In him was life. And it was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus was the very source of all things, including life itself. He is the embodiment of life. So you and I are living, you and I are alive because Jesus gave us life. He created us. He ordained for us to be alive. We're alive because of him. And we're able to have eternal life because Jesus, being life itself, is a, has the power to give us that eternal life. Jesus is very clear and emphatic here. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But then notice what he says. He says, no one comes to the Father except for me. No one comes to God the Father. No one approaches him. No one has a relationship with God the Father except through Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing that you have to understand. Okay, and I can't state this, you know, 
uh, overstate this enough, but when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father, the word that he uses in the Greek for no one is this word right here. Okay? It's pronounced udais. Udais. Okay? Udais is a compound word of two other words. U means no or not. Di, or heis means one. And so what this can be literally translated as is not one or no one or nothing. Udais is a powerful uh, negating conjunction. It rules out by definition all possibilities. It is essentially, it shuts the door uh, objectively leaving no exceptions. When Jesus says udais or no one, there's no exception to that statement. Okay, and Udice is deductive in force and it excludes the, every example that can be possibly thought of. Okay, Udice categorically excludes all other possibilities. And so when Jesus says, No one, Udice, no one can come to the Father except by me, what he is saying is simply, There never has been. And there never ever will be anyone who can come to the Father except through me. No one. Never, no exceptions, period, end of story. In effect, what Jesus is saying is there is no other way to the Father. The only way to the Father is Jesus. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We're not getting there any other way. We're not getting there through any other person. We're not getting there through any other religion. The gospel is absolutely exclusive. You must put your hope and your faith and belief in Jesus alone for salvation. There is no other way. Now, some might think, but why? I mean, I mean, why is he the only way? I mean, I know he died on the cross. I know that he sacrificed himself to pay for my sins. But I don't understand why it has to be that way. Why can't there be multiple ways? Well, the answer to that question is actually simpler than what you might expect. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And immediately after that, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on... You do know him and have seen him. Philip, again, I think I'd be like him too. Lord, show us the Father. Um, and it's, it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Okay, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does, and his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You see, Jesus tells us why he is the only way the Father. He's the only way the Father because he and the Father are one. They are united. He and the Father are united because they are God. Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are united because they are God. Remember what John said in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God, the Son, come to earth to become a man, fully God, fully man, in order to close the distance between us and God. You see, we are incapable of overcoming that gulf that exists between us and God. We cannot do it. 
Now, every other religion in the world, that is exactly what they try to do. People who follow those other religions, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to reach up to God. They're trying to, by their own efforts, make themselves acceptable to God. They're trying to span this gulf between them and God by what they do. But it cannot be done. It is impossible. And God knows that. And so God took it upon himself, not to meet us halfway. Okay, God took it upon himself to come all the way to the earth to save us so we could have that relationship with him. The incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, okay, uh, God himself coming to, the, coming to the earth, is God spanning the entire gulf between us and him by himself. In fact, Jesus gives us a picture of that in John 1.51 when he says, and he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven's... <clears throat> Opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man. So he's saying, all right, that you will see angels ascending and descending on me. Well, what's he talking about? What he's talking about is, is he's talking about the stairway to heaven that, that uh, the patriarch Jacob saw in his dream. Jacob, who is the father of all Israel, when he was on his road, spent the night on the side of the road, and, and, and as he slept, he dreamed a dream where he saw this great stairway that went from the earth all the way to heaven, and, and angels ascended and descended on that. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm that stairway. He's saying that I'm the connection between heaven and earth. I'm the only way to heaven. I'm the only way to the Father. And the Father and I are one. You see, the gospel is exclusive because it has to be. Because it is God himself who made the way for us to be saved. That is the part that you have to understand. Salvation isn't available because you deserve it. Salvation isn't available because your good deeds. Salvation isn't available because you love God. In fact, there's some people who believe that, that that's what salvation is about. I hear it all the time. Well, I love God, okay? They think that, that you're saved simply because you love God. And some people say, oh, yeah, you can love God. There are many way, different ways to love God. But the truth is simply this. <laughs> salvation is not about whether or not you love God. I'm just going to tell you that right now. It's, it has nothing to do with your ability to love God. Now, that might be a shock for you to hear, okay? But if it's about your ability to love, then guess what? Your salvation is about what you do and how you earn it. It would be about your ability to love. That's what you do. But it's not about your ability to love God. Loving God has nothing to do with, your, with, with getting saved. Loving God comes as a result of being saved. You see, lots of people love their gods. The Greeks loved Zeus, and Zeus couldn't save them. The Romans loved Jupiter, but Jupiter couldn't save them. The Egyptians loved Ra, but he couldn't save them. Muslims love their God, Allah. And I'm just telling you, Muslims probably love Allah more than a lot of Christians love God. Okay? You can just, that just that's just who they are. But I'm just going to tell you, Allah can't save them. Right? Our love for our God, whoever that may be, cannot save us. Our love cannot overcome the gulf between us and God. We cannot love God enough to overcome the distance between us. Salvation is not available to us because we love God. Salvation is available because He, the one true living God, the God of the Bible, made a way for us to be saved. God the Father sent God the Son to the earth to become fully God, fully man, and to die in our place. As a sacrifice that washes away our sin, salvation is available because God plowed the road to salvation with the blood of his own son. The gospel is exclusive 
Because it's God himself who made the way, made the way for us to be saved. Jesus is, in fact, the only way. Jesus who existed as God for eternity past. And not some just created being is the only way. Jesus, who was from the moment he was conceived fully God and fully man, is the only way to be saved. No one, no other Jesus can save you. I don't care what other religions say about Jesus or that they believe in Jesus. The Jesus who supposedly is the literal, spiritual, and physical offspring of God, who is Lucifer's real brother, cannot save you. Okay? The Jesus who is born from a God, who was once a man himself, and who became God, okay, in an endless line of other gods, the Jesus associated with that cannot save you. Only Jesus, fully God, fully man, not created, but begotten of the Father. Jesus who existed throughout eternity past, uh, past you know, with the Father and the Holy Spirit together as the one true living God who has no equal, the creator, the sustainer of everything. Only that Jesus can save you. Amen. Only that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. It is by only that Jesus that I can come to the Father, that you can come to the Father. Salvation is, is, is found nowhere else except through Jesus, regardless of how you feel about it. Regardless of who we care about that refuses to accept that. Now realize that the exclusivity of the gospel is a problem for a lot of people. And so many people just simply refuse to accept it. Because, but the, the exclusivity of the gospel is necessary. Okay? And this might seem strange, but it's necessary. It has to be that way. Okay? Think about this. Salvation is available because God himself made a way for us to be saved. God made it all about him and what he has done and not what we do. We just come to him through faith. Okay? It's not about us being good enough or doing enough stuff or being nice enough or being devoted enough. It's about God and what He has done. And, and, and because it's about God and what He has done, the exclusive nature of the gospel suddenly becomes radically inclusive. Because think about this. Because Jesus did it all and paid it all, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you have done. You are welcome to receive Christ through faith. There are no restrictions to that. Okay? You have to understand that. So with other religions, it's about who you are. It's about what you do. Okay? You have to come to God by your own efforts. <clears throat> okay? you, have to, you have to do things on your own. But the problem is, is you might not make it. There's always an insecurity because you might not make it. Because you might just be really, really good and you might be doing all the right things and feeding all the right kids and doing all the right stuff and stub your toe and cuss and then die, right? And then you're toast. So you might, you're, you're not able to reach high enough. But with Christ, it's completely different than that. Okay? You just accept the fact that you're not good enough and then you trust in Him to deliver you because He's already done everything for you. It's already done. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl. It doesn't matter, you know, if, you know, if you're black or white or, or whatever. It doesn't matter about your income bracket. It doesn't matter about what country you're from. It doesn't matter, matter about your political views. It doesn't matter if you used to be a Hindu or a Mormon. It doesn't matter if you were an accountant or a drug dealer. Okay? All. All are welcome to come to Christ. That is radically inclusive. Okay. All 
are welcome to come and believe in him and be saved. You see, the gospel is exclusive because it must be in order for so many people to freely be able to come to God and be saved. And so that is the basic essential truth that you and I must clearly understand and clearly believe, okay, is that there is only one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Let me pray for you. Lord God, I'm going to be honest. There are times I talk to some people and I hear them talk about how they love God and this and that. And there's a part of me that says, I just really just hope there's some way, you know, that they can be saved. But the truth is, it's not about how I feel. It's about what your word says. And your word says that Jesus is the only way. That we need to understand our sin nature, that we are broken, fallen sinners and we're incapable of fixing it ourselves and there's a consequence to that. But so many of us in our culture don't want to, we don't want to talk about hell anymore. We don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about how Jesus makes us feel better and how our life gets better. We don't want to talk about the fact that this life is but a breath. This life is just so short compared to eternity and that what we do here determines what we do in eternity, how we live, whether we live or, with, or live without you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd impress upon all of our hearts that we would just boldly and lovingly accept this truth. That we would just stand firm. Not that we want to, like, stand and get in arguments with people. Not that we want to condemn people and be mean. But that we can just lovingly tell them the truth. Say, yeah, I know how you feel, but I'm just telling you there's no other way but Jesus. The Jesus who is fully God, fully man. Literally resurrected from the cross. And there's not any other gods. There's never been any other gods. There never will be any other gods. There's one God. And Lord, that even though that we can't understand fully how that works, you just give us the confidence to believe it because you said it. Your word declares it clearly. And you've given us enough to, to be able to trust you. The historical nature of the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us plenty to be able to believe you and your word. And so I pray, Lord, right now we just embrace that. We take that home and we would hold on to that. And that this would be a church that would grab a hold of and gravitate towards these foundational things that we believe. And that we would have grace and mercy for those around us and we would tell them the truth. And I pray, Father, that you'd be glorified in what we do. I pray that you'd meet everybody's needs. I pray that you would uh, touch lives and hearts, Lord. I pray you'd prepare hearts for us to minister to them. We pray for those who have experienced loss, who are sick. And we pray, Lord, that you would raise up in this congregation the people who are hungry and thirsty for your word and they would go out and storm the gates of hell to share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with this community. I'm praying for this community, Lord. I'm praying that this community would, would, would change radically, that there'd be a revival here in this town, that people around us would say, what is going on in Boron? And we'd be able to say, it's God. God is doing the work. And so we just lift you up and we're praying for that and we just pray that you'd be glorified in all that we do and we say, we love you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.